we read once more the verses 28, 29, and 30 in the 8th chapter of Paul's epistle to the Romans. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestine it to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestine, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. Now, we are at the moment uh, looking at this great argument displayed before us here by the Apostle. It's a statement, perhaps the greatest of all of them, concerning the doctrine of the final perseverance of the saints, which means that those who once are born again can never finally fall away from grace or out of that position of relationship to God as his dear children. We've considered the verses that are generally brought forward uh, in objection to this, and having done that, we began last Friday night in a, a general statement again of the doctrine and the inevitability of this doctrine in the light of scriptural teaching. For instance, I try to show again how every single term that the apostle uses in this statement carries with it this necessary implication that this doctrine must be true, otherwise, somehow or another, God has been mistaken. He should never have called us if he knew that finally we were going to fall away, and so on with all the other terms. They involve a, a contradiction of the doctrine concerning God's omniscience and God's foreknowledge. Secondly, we saw that what is said everywhere in the scriptures about believers carries also this same necessary implication. For instance, here are some of the terms that we found we are told that we are saved in the life of Christ, that we are dead to sin, that we are dead to the law. The new birth, in the same way, puts it positively. And still more, the great doctrine of our union with Christ, and particularly that statement on which we ended last, Sunday, uh, last Friday night when we reminded one another that the Apostle tells the Ephesians that as Christians, we are already seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And it's utterly inconceivable that we should ever be placed in that position if finally we are to spend our eternity in perdition and in hell. Very well. In other words, to sum up all that I've said, we can put it like this. That everything that we are told about the Christian, about the believer, carries with it this inevitable implication of the final perseverance of such people. Now, this has been stated, it seems to me, very clearly by our blessed Lord himself in a statement in John 5, verse 24, the fifth chapter of the Gospel according to St. John, chapter uh, verse 24. Verily, verily, I say unto you. Now, this is... A grave statement, the verily, verily, truly, truly, amen, amen, whichever way you translate it, it always calls attention 
to some statement of uh, unusually profound significance and importance. So our Lord says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath, not he shall have, has or hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. I would have thought that that one verse should really be sufficient in and of itself. We are told that he hath everlasting life, that he shall not come unto condemnation, because he's got everlasting life. But, and this is a further reason for it, he shall not come into condemnation because he is passed from death unto life. Now, this new English translation is really uh, almost amusing in this verse. It, uh, at, at the first, it puts it like this. He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me has hold of eternal life. You see, they don't seem to be very sure at that point. They don't say that he's got it, which is what the original says. They say he's got hold of it. That might give the impression, mightn't it, that uh, he might lose his hold of it. But then, you see, they go on to say this, that he shall not come into condemnation, and then they become even stronger than the authorized translation. They go on to say, but has already passed. They introduce the word already, which is not in the original making it even stronger still. But it all comes to the same thing. Has already passed from death unto life. Well, whichever translation you take, you see it comes to the same thing. And the statements are unequivocal. They can only have one meaning. One meaning. He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me has everlasting life. He's already got it and shall not come into condemnation, but is, has already passed from death unto life. Well, we've already seen that in many statements which I adduced last Friday night out of the sixth chapter, the beginning of the sixth chapter of this epistle to the Romans. But there it is in one verse stated by our blessed Lord and Savior himself. Very well. That really should be enough. But... Knowing the difficulty people get, and indeed the opposition of some people even to this doctrine, I want to bring yet further arguments. So the third argument uh, I put in this way. It is an argument based upon the nature of the church. The nature of the Christian church. Now, what I mean is this. Our great danger, most of us, is to think of this great salvation that we enjoy too much and too exclusively in individual terms. The whole emphasis today is upon this individual aspect. Now, what they're concerned about is, of course, that we should be certain that we are saved, that we are not content merely with believing about salvation in general, but that we should know that we ourselves are saved. That's all right. That's perfectly right. That is true, and we must all make sure of that. But, of course, the emphasis is almost exclusively on this side. My decision, my taking Christ, my accepting the offer. 
We've got to do that, as I say. But the impression is given that that is the one thing that matters. And we tend to stop at that point and think of it solely in terms of our own individual possession of salvation. Now then, what I'm saying is this, that while that is perfectly true, and we must all make sure of our position, that that is not the whole truth. We, after all, as individual Christians, are parts of a whole. Look at the way this apostle puts it in 1 Corinthians 12, 27. He says, Ye are the body of Christ, and members in particular. Yes, we are individual particular members, but you mustn't say that you're only individual particular members. The great doctrine that is emphasized everywhere in the New Testament is, is the church as the body of Christ. We are, as members of the church, we are not a loose collection of odd individuals, all of whom has this solely individual relationship to the Lord. That's quite wrong. We must think of ourselves as being members in particular of a body, which is a whole. And it's very wrong of us to think of ourselves as Christians, except in terms of our belonging to this whole. We have no separate individual existence. We are all individual parts of a whole. Now, the analogy, of course, is a perfect one. That's why the apostle uses it, obviously. It's that of the body. You see, there's no sense or meaning in a finger in and of itself. It's a part of a whole. It's a part of a hand. And a hand is not a, something in and of itself. It's a part. It's joined on to a forearm and arm and all the rest of it. Now, here is surely something which we are all tending to forget. All this exclusively personal, individual emphasis today can be most misleading, and it is misleading. They therefore think that as they come in this individual manner to Christ, they can fall out of that individual relationship to Christ. It's largely because they fail to remember the New Testament emphasis upon the church as a body, and that the individual aspect is only an aspect of the whole, not something in and of itself. It's a part of the whole. Never think of a part as something separate. It's a part of a whole, always. Now, we'll see the importance of that in a moment. Now, the Apostles, of course, says that more than once in that 12th chapter of the first epistle to the Corinthians, take, for instance, the crucial statement here in the 13th verse of that chapter, for he says that we have all been baptized by one Spirit into one body. That's what the Holy Spirit has done. We are baptized by the Spirit into this one body of Christ. Very well, there's another statement of it, but there are still further statements of this which I feel I must quote because of the tendency to forget this. Take Ephesians 4.4, for instance. There is one body and one Spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your call. See, there it is once more for us. And, of course, he's already mentioned this at the end of the first chapter of the epistle to the Ephesians, where he says, And hath put all things under his feet, God has put everything under the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, 
the fullness of him that filleth all in all. And again in Ephesians 4.16, that great statement of it. From whom the Lord Jesus Christ, the whole body, fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. Christ is the head, he says in verse 15, and then from who? The whole body. So that as you think of yourself as an individual Christian, be careful always to remember that you're not in isolation. We are all a part of this body of Christ. The church, the whole, is more than a mere summation of the parts, but we are parts of the whole. Now then, why is this so important? Well, for this reason. Does it come to anybody here tonight, I wonder, as a surprise if I say this? That the Lord Jesus Christ has not so much died for us as individuals, but has died for his people. That's where all this is so important. Of course, you deduce that he has died for you as an individual. Yes, but he only dies for you as an individual because you belong to the people for whom he has died as a whole. Now then, let me substantiate my contention here. I read that mighty 17th chapter of John's Gospel at the beginning, because there, of course, it's taught in almost every verse. Let me pick out some of the more crucial statements of it. Take the second verse. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. God has given him a people, and he has come to give eternal life to these people who have been given to him by God. Take verse 6, then. I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy word. Take out again verse 9. I pray for them, I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. God has given him a people, and all he does, he does for these people. Look at it again in verse 11. Verse 10, of course, is just an elaboration. All mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I am glorified in them. And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to thee. Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they, that they may be one as we are. Now, you know this 17th chapter of John is uh, the great chapter that's been appropriated by the so-called ecumenical movement today. And, of course, they think this is the great statement of it. It is the great statement of the ultimate unity, but not in the sense in which they use it. This isn't just a coming together of everybody who call themselves Christian. This is a unity that is like the unity between the Father and the Son. That's the unity that our Lord speaks of in John 17. That they may be one as we are. And it's only in that sense that we are to be one. Verse 12, while I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me. You see, God has given him a people. And our Lord came into the world to do what he did for these people who were given to him by God. He keeps on saying it. And none of them is lost. 
but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. That was prophesied, that was known. He was never really one of them at all. So that this is a reference, of course, to Judas Iscariot. Then you get that same idea going on. But let me hurry on to verse 19 so that I don't read the whole chapter again. And for their sakes I sanctify myself that they also might be sanctified through the truth. Neither pray I for these alone. In other words, lest somebody think that he's only speaking these things of the disciples. He was speaking it of them primarily. But he says it's not only true of them, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. And that comes right down to us today. That they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us. That's the union. It's the union of these people. Their union with Christ and his union with the Father. That's the only unity that's talked about in John 17. It's not a mere union of organizations or of denominations. It is an essentially spiritual union of the deepest type that we can conceive of. But let's go on. Verse 22. And the glory which thou gavest me I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one. There's nothing higher than that. The unity between the Father and the Son is the unity between those of us who are members of his body and are all joined to him as the living head. On he goes, I in them and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. God's love to us as Christians is the same as his love to his own son. If his love to us can somehow be frustrated, well then his Love to the Son can be frustrated in the same way. The thing is impossible. It's just a monstrous suggestion. These are his own words. Verse 24. Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. Now the whole of that chapter, as you see, makes this doctrine quite inevitable. But the thing I'm emphasizing at the moment is this. That the big point made by our Lord is that all he came into the world to do, he came to do for these people whom God had given him. He doesn't pray for the world, he prays for these only. These are the people, the ones whom God has given him. And I therefore say that he died for them. And that all he does, he does for them. Now, let's again notice the Apostle Paul putting this same point. My, my statement is, my argument is, that we mustn't so much say that the Lord Jesus Christ died for us as separate individuals. He died for these people whom God gave him before the foundation of the world. Who are these? These are the church. So that you see, when you come to Ephesians 5 and begin to read at verse 25, this is what you get. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. 
Now that's, if you like, a similar kind of statement which the, the apostle made in saying his farewell to the elders at Ephesus as recorded in Acts 20, where he says, referring to the church, which he purchased with his own blood. It's the same notion. Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. He died for the church. And he only died for us individually as we are a part of the church. So you see, the apostle goes on to say things like this. He gave himself for it that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. He's talking about the church the whole time, not about a collection of individuals, but about the church as the bride, his own bride, that he's preparing for himself. And thus he perfects her, that he may present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife, now here's an extraordinary argument, he that loveth his wife, loveth himself. How can that be? How is it true to say that a man who loves his wife is thereby loving himself? Well, here's his answer. No man, he says, ever yet hated his own flesh. So a man's wife is his own flesh, but he nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. We're in that intimate relationship. We're not holding on to or hanging on to or loosely attached. We're a part of him. We're a part of his body. It's a difficult argument. This is a great mystery, he goes on to say. But you see, that's how he works it out. We are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. Then back to the analogy of marriage. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. Glorious doctrine about marriage. Yes, but this is a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. That's the relationship between Christ and the church. One flesh. Members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. Very well. Here's the teaching you see. He died for this people given to him. That's the church. And he died for the church. And nothing that belongs to the church can therefore be lost. The intimate relationship is such that it's something which is quite impossible. Now it does seem to me that if we only grasp this idea and cease to think of our salvation in that kind of atomistic manner, it'll not only help us to understand this doctrine, it'll save us from a lot of trouble in many, many respects. He came to do all he did for this people that God gave him. Christ died for the church, the full, the complete church. He died to redeem that church and to perfect it and to present it to himself. And it will be absolutely perfect. There won't be a part missing. It won't be minus a finger or minus a foot. It will be perfect and entire, a complete whole without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. That's the, that's the argument. And it, of course, makes the doctrine of the final perseverance of the saints 
quite inevitable. If any of us can fall off, the church will no longer be perfect. It will be a mutilated, truncated church, minus various parts and portions. The thing is quite inconceivable, it is quite impossible in the light of this great doctrine. Now, I say, let's get hold of this glorious New Testament doctrine of the church and put less emphasis upon the individual aspect. I don't even like to put it like that. These things should not be in competition. But it is this fatal tendency to count heads and to be interested in numbers that causes the whole confusion. Let's remember that Christ died for the church. He's come to give eternal life to as many as God had given him before the foundation of the world. Very well. We leave that there and go on to what is then our fourth argument. That was the third because I'd given the two previous ones you remember last Friday night. So the fourth argument I am developing is this one. That this again is entirely confirmed by the teaching in the scriptures concerning chastisement. Chastisement. Now, here again, is a doctrine which is stated with particular clarity at certain points. And the first I go to is 1 Corinthians 11, the teaching concerning how we should come to the Lord's table and to partake of the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians 11, 27 to the end. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh judgment. The authorized is Paul here, it's got damnation. It should be judgment. Eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause, here it is, many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. Because they haven't examined themselves and come in the right way, he says that many are weak, physically weak, many are ill, sick, sickly among you, and some have even died, many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, he says, in this way, we should not be judged. Now listen to this. But when we are judged in this way by God afflicting us with weakness or sickness or illness or even death, but when we are judged, what is it? Well, it means that we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. He does this to us in order that we may not be condemned with the world. In other words, he does this to his own people, because they are his own people, and are not involved in the condemnation of the world. Very well, there is the argument as it's put there, and especially notice that 32nd verse, which is the Vital one at that point. Well, now let's turn to Hebrews 12, where, of course, we've got this again in a very notable passage, in verses 5 to 11 of Hebrews 12. Some of the verses are particularly important. He says, You have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children, saying, My son, my son, you see. That's the emphasis. My son. Remember that you are my son. Despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. Why not? Well, for whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. 
If you endure chastening, God, what he, what he means by enduring chastening is this. He says, if you are being subject to chastening, if you are now having a very difficult time and are enduring or suffering or having to put up with, if you like, the, the chastening of the Lord, God is dealing with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? But if you be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, all meaning obviously all sons, if you be without chastisement, if you're not being chastised, this thing which happens to all who are partakers as sons, then are you bastards and not sons. In other words, the argument is that if you're not receiving the chastisement, you're not a child of God at all. You're a bastard. You think you're a child of God, but you're not, and you never have been. You're a bastard and not really a son. Perfectly clear argument, isn't it? Furthermore, he says, you have had, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much more rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure. But he, for our profit, that in order that we might be partakers of his holiness. That's why he does it. It is a part of his process of preparing his children for the glory which he has prepared for them. In other words, the argument from chastisement is this. That because we are chastised, it is proof positive that we are children. Because we wouldn't be chastised if we were bastards. It's a proof, therefore, that we are children. And God chastises his children because he's preparing them for that sharing of his eternal holiness with him. So that we argue like this, you see. That the very employment of chastisement is a proof of the final perseverance of the saints because it is the way in which God does enable them to persevere. If you like, compels them to persevere. He doesn't leave us alone because we are his children. Because we are his children, he's going to do this, that, and the other to us until he brings us to that place which he has originally designed for us, which is the conformity, again, to the image of his dear son. So it's a most important argument. Now, I think I can illustrate this to you in this way. Take that reference to Judas in that 17th chapter of John's Gospel, the son of perdition. Contrast the dealing with Judas and the dealing with the Apostle Peter. Now, the Apostle Peter denied his Lord he denied him three times. He denied him with oaths and cursing. There's nothing to be said in defense of Peter. It was cowardly, it was dastardly, it was everything that was wrong. Peter deliberately denied his Lord in order to save his life. But you notice the extraordinary difference in the treatment of the two. Our Lord prepared Peter for it before him. You'll find the thing described in the, in, in the 12th chapter of the Gospel according to St. Luke. There it is dealt with most fully. Let me just remind you of what we read there. 
because our, our Lord, as I say, puts it there in a particularly clear manner. He says to Peter that he knows exactly what he is going to do and what, uh, how he is going to deny him and so on. But he gives him this great assurance. I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. Now, you see, he takes care of Peter. He knows Peter's weakness. He knows what's going to happen to him. He knows that he's going to deny him. But nevertheless, he says, I'm going to pray for you that your faith may fail not. And after thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. I'm wrong in saying Luke 12, of course. It's Luke 22. Luke 22 and especially the verses beginning at verse 31. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desire to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not, and when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. Peter then foolishly says, Lord, I am ready to go with thee both into prison and to death. And he said, I tell thee, Peter, the cock shall not crow this day before thou shalt thrice deny that thou knowest me. Now, you see, the whole explanation is this. Our Lord knows what Judas and Peter are going to do. But he doesn't say anything like this to Judas. He doesn't care for Judas. Judas is allowed to go his own way. He's the son of perdition. He's never really belonged. Peter does. And because of that, he prays for him. He's caring for him. And he assures him even before he is fallen that he's going to be restored and tells him to strengthen his brethren after he has been restored. Peter doesn't understand it. You see, thank God it doesn't depend upon our understanding. It depends upon the fact that he's holding on to us, that he's praying. We are held by him and not by what we do. Otherwise we would all, beyond any question, be lost irretrievably. And let me finally end this particular section by reading a very good statement of this whole doctrine, this aspect of chastisement from Psalm 89, in which there's a very clear statement. Psalm 89, verses 31 to 34. If they break my statutes and keep not my commandments, then will I visit their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. Nevertheless, my loving kindness will I not utterly take from him, nor suffer my faithfulness to fail. My covenant will I not break, nor alter the thing that is gone out of my lips. Once have I sworn by my holiness that I will not lie unto David. His seed shall endure forever and his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever as the moon and as a faithful witness in heaven. Now here it is, you see. I will visit their transgression with a rod and their iniquity with stripes. That's chastisement. That's punishment. And it can be very severe. The teaching there in 1 Corinthians 11 beyond any question is 
that there were some Christian people who had died because of their lack of faithfulness. But though they're dead, they're not lost. That's the distinction. They're dead, they've gone out of this life, but they're not lost. Even their death innocence is a part of the chastisement that ultimately saves the soul. And here he says, Nevertheless, my loving kindness will I not utterly take from him, nor suffer my faithfulness to fail. My covenant will I not break, nor alter the thing that is gone out of my lips. And as I think I've already reminded you on a previous occasion, the whole doctrine of handing over to Satan is a proof of the same thing. He's handed over to Satan that the flesh might be dealt with and corrected in order that the soul may not be saved. In other words, the whole teaching concerning chastisement seems to me to teach perfectly plainly and clearly this doctrine of the final perseverance of the saints. It is one of the ways by which God preserves his people and perfects them and prepares them for that final glory which he has already predestined for them in the Lord Jesus Christ. And one other argument this evening. It's the argument from the doctrine of the remnant. Let me put this to you before I close. There is very clearly taught in the scriptures this great doctrine of the remnant. Now then, let me give you some of the statements. It's particularly taught in this very epistle to the Romans with which we are dealing. Now, here it is in Romans 9, verse 29 which is a quotation from Isaiah 1, 9. But let me read it in Romans 9, 29. And as Isaiah said before, except the Lord of Sabaoth had left us a seed, we had been a Sodomer and been made like unto Gomorrah. What it means, you see, is this. If the Lord of Sabaoth himself had not left us a seed, we'd have all gone. Isaiah 1 is a description of the terrible fall and failure and sin of the nation of Israel. They had left, you remember we are told, like that cucumber tent, as it were, in the vineyard. Everything has gone but just that. And here it is quite plainly stated by the prophet, and the apostle quotes it. If the Lord of Sabaoth himself had not left, which means preserved a seed, we had been a Sodom and had been made like unto Gomorrah. It's the Lord of Sabaoth who preserves the remnant. The remnant doesn't preserve itself. Let's go on then and see how he puts it, the same thing in chapter 11, in the first six verses. I say then, hath God cast away his people? See, the problem is this. Here is the vast majority of the Jewish nation rejecting Christ, crucifying their own Messiah, the vast majority. So the question arises, as these are the people of God, hath God cast away his people? God forbid, answers the apostle. For I also am an Israelite, of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God hath not cast away his people whom he foreknew. 
What he not with the scripture saith of Elias? How he maketh intercession to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed thy prophets and digged down thine altars, and I am left alone, and they seek my life. But what saith the answer of God unto him? I have reserved to myself seven thousand men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. Even so then at this present time also, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no more of works. Otherwise grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more grace. Otherwise work is no more work. What it means, you see, is this. Poor Elijah thought he was the only one left. And what God said to him is this, you're wrong, you know. You're not alone. You're not the only one left who's true to the cause. I have reserved to myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. He doesn't say, look here, there are another 7,000 who are holding on and who are not falling away with the rest. Wonderful people they are, they're holding on. Their faith is still keeping them and holding them. They haven't fallen away. They haven't gone back. They're holding on. Not at all. I have reserved to myself. And then, to put it still more plainly, even so, he says now. He says, I'm one of them. Don't say that God hath forsaken or cast off his people. I'm an Israelite. I'm one, says Paul, but I'm not the only one, thank God. Even so, at this present time, there is also a remnant. Well, uh, What's, what accounts for this remnant in Israel? Oh, it's a remnant according to the election, the choice of grace. It's God. He says, as he reserved 10,000 in addition to Elijah in that ancient time, he is reserving to himself even now, with things as they are even now, a remnant for himself according to the election of grace. And then in order to make quite sure that we are clear that... Uh, you mustn't uh, give the glory to these Jews who decided to believe. He says, look here, if it's of grace, it's no more of works. It isn't their works. It isn't even their believing. It's grace. And it's, uh, if it's grace, then it's no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more of grace. It's no more grace. But if it be a works, well, then it's no more grace. It's got to be one or the other. And it isn't works, he says. It's nothing in them. It's all of grace. It's all of God. It's all of the election. It's God reserving unto himself these people. There's a remnant in Israel. Now then, there is the argument. And take with that this. What he's already said in Romans 9, verses 6 and 7. Which is again, you see, Another definition of the remnant, if you like. Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect. Don't you say, he says, because the whole bulk of the nation of Israel seems to be in unbelief. Don't you say then that all that God did in the Old Testament has been a waste of time, is a frustrated effort, and it's come to nothing. No, no, not as though the word of God hath taken none effect. For, because... They are not all Israel that are of Israel. Neither because they are of the seed of Abram are they all children. But in Isaac shall thy seed be called. He says, don't you run away with the notion 
that everybody who belongs to the nation of Israel is a child of God, not at all. There is a true Israel within that larger Israel that everybody can see. They're not all Israel that are of Israel, which you remember in modern terms means this. They're not all Christians who say they are. They're not all Christians who call themselves Christians. They're not all Christians who are members in the visible Christian church. No, no. God knows who are his people. And it's this true Israel that is the, the remnant according to the election of grace. People like the Apostle Paul and others. Very well then it comes to this, you see. That there would be no remnant at all if God didn't keep it. If God doesn't preserve a remnant, everybody will fall. We'll all be like Sodom and Gomorrah. We'll all fail. But the teaching concerning the remnant is, is always, that it is a remnant that God himself reserves and preserves. It is a remnant according to the election of grace. I don't know what you feel like saying. What I feel like saying is this, thank God that it is so. If I thought my eternal future depended upon me, I would be of all men most miserable. God calls and God keeps and God reserves and God will never leave and never forsake. Let us pray. O Lord our God, we come to thank Thee and to praise Thy name. What amazes us, O God, is that Thou hast never called us and reserved us, that Thou hast never made us members in particular of the body of Christ. O God, we can but worship Thee and adore and express our amazement and yield ourselves to thee anew and afresh, thanking thee that what matters we realize this evening is not our frail hold on thee, but thy strong, almighty grasp of us. Oh, grant that we all may know experimentally the pressure of thy hand upon us, knowing that we are held and shall be held, that nothing and no one can ever pluck us out of thy hand, because it is thy hand. Lord, grant that we all may know a sense of rejoicing and of praise as we realize this most blessed truth. And now, May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship and the communion of the Holy Spirit abide and continue with us now this night throughout the remainder of this hour short, uncertain, earthly life and pilgrimage and until we shall find ourselves fully conformed to the image of his dear Son in the glory. Amen.
We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust audio library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.